space, space, space. Today's episode is going to deep dive into PTSS. And this topic has taken me a minute to digest. It started with um, attending a panel discussion with four women four brilliant women who are in the social work and mental health and wellness field. And the discussion was held on April 5th, 2023 at the Allegra Westbrooks Library in Charlotte, Mecklenburg, North Carolina. The title was More Than a Notion, a discussion on post-traumatic slave syndrome and how it reverberates throughout the Black community. And so I attended the panel discussion, and I attempted to do a recap, a review, but as I did it, I started exploring some of the vocabulary and some of the terms, and also how it affected me on a personal level as a Black woman, um, myself, my family, my coworkers, my friends, it, it, got, it got real. So here it is you know, a couple of weeks later, and and I'm finally ready to do this episode. So when I got on my laptop to look up PTSS, I thought it was going to go straight to the um, website of Dr. Joy DeGruy, because she's the the Black intellectual, the Black uh, scholar who wrote the book, post-traumatic slave syndrome. But when I put PTSS into the search engine, it pulled up a website that offers healing for veterans. And I looked at it, I was like, okay, I know that's PTSD, but also PTSS. So I looked at the website real quick, knowing that wasn't um, what pertained to me. But it was interesting because PTSS on this site is post-traumatic stress syndrome. And then PTSD is post-traumatic. Wait, what is this? Um, PTSS. And what's the difference? PTSS. Oh, because the D is a disorder. So PTSS on for the veterans is considered post-traumatic stress syndrome. And then PTSD is the disorder. The main difference being the intensity and the duration. Interesting. So in their version of PTSS, it resolves itself on its own within a few days or weeks. And is not considered a diagnosable mental disorder. Okay, so yeah, so that's interesting. And not to get too deep into that, but those symptoms are recurring nightmares, refusal to talk about the traumatic event or obsessing over ways it might have been avoided or handled differently, difficulty concentrating, jumpiness, chronic fretting or worrying, mood swings, pulling away from relationships, depression, Feelings of guilt or worthlessness, intense fear of circumstances or environments associated with the original trauma, 
reckless behavior, memory blackouts, flashbacks, and suicidal thoughts. So when I get to the PTSS that stands for post-traumatic slave syndrome, that website, maybe I'll type it all the way out so I can get to it. Okay. So the book comes up. She has a book as well as uh, workshops, uh, Dr. Joy DeGruy. And she wasn't part of the panel. It was a panel of black women scholars who are uh, based here in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm going to just try to search for her website because I was on it the other day. Where is it? All right, let me try it again because I want you to be able to look it up so you can see it for yourself. I believe she has it under her name, like not under. And that would make sense because I'm not post-traumatic <laughs> slave syndrome. I'm Dr. Joy DeGruy. www.drjoydgury.com. Let's see if that's what pulls it up. Yes. Okay, so... The site to get to Dr. Joy DeGruy's work is www.joydegruy.com. And that's where we're going to get the definition. That's where I'm going to get the definition for today's episode. Post-traumatic slave syndrome, PTSS, is a theory that explains the etiology of many of the adaptive survival behaviors in African-American communities throughout the United States and the diaspora. It is a condition that exists as a consequence of multi-generational oppression of Africans and their descendants resulting from centuries of chattel slavery, a form of slavery which was predicated on the belief that African-Americans were inherently slash genetically inferior to whites. This was then followed by institutionalized racism, which continues to perpetuate injury. And she goes on to the portion of it that matters. Let the healing begin, a legacy of healing. Dr. Joy DeGruy authored the book entitled Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, America's Legacy of Enduring Injury and Healing, which addresses the residual impacts of trauma on African descendants in the Americas. Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, PTSS, lays the groundwork for understanding how the past has influenced the present and opens up the discussion of how we can eliminate non-productive attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors developed to cope and survive the traumatic periods of capture, transport, enslavement, Jim Crow, and current-day racial terrorism. The focus of the book is to learn and build upon the strengths that we have gained from the past in order to heal from injuries both past and present. And on her website, 
you're able to purchase the book, the accompanying workbook. Uh, she has online courses for p- professionals in the field of social work, mental health, and other fields like that. And you're, uh, you're able to book her for speaking. I also found, and this was the most interesting part for me on her website, <coughs> excuse me, is a reparations blueprint, North American reparations, a blueprint for global healing. This initiative is designed specifically to bring about racial equity and remedy the ills that have plagued North America and its institutions for centuries. Partners across North America, North America, (laughs) partners across North America are working together to integrate services that will be utilized as a mechanism for change at the individual, community, and institutional levels. Let truth prevail. Let the demand for justice be our guide. Let the healing begin. Enslavement and colonialism has stifled the mental, emotional, material, and physical progress of humanity. These issues have multi-generational impact across the world, originating from anti-blackness. North America's climate reflects the most baneful and persistent examples of overt and systemic racial terrorism in the industrialized world. Preparations include reducing individual, community, and institutional drama. This must involve assessing the extent of the injuries resulting from traumas, establishing healing practices and strategies, and finally, changing or eliminating harmful, antiquated policies. The approach, this innovative approach to reparations, is a transformative model for global restoration, repair, and healing, addressing the historical harm and trauma of racism and colonialization. Colonization. The movement, North American Reparations, a blueprint for global healing, is informed by the research of Dr. Joy DeGruy in her seminal book entitled Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, America's Legacy of Enduring Injury and Healing, PTSS. The goal, we are aiming for an equitable, peaceful, healthy, and sustainable society through restoration of the historical truth, policies, and legislation that will mitigate multi-generational, ongoing harm. So with that as the background for the panel discussion I attended, I want to share with you the dynamic points and work being done by four, was it four? It was five, too, because the person who brought it all together was a dynamic black woman as well. So we had um, Jamila Green, who was the community engagement manager for the YWCA here in Charlotte, 
Charlotte, North Carolina, Mecklenburg County. Raquel Ward was one of the panelists. Uh, she's a social worker. Isis Bay, Sonia Richardson. All three are social workers. Two have their own mental health private practices, published speakers around the world, around the country, actually, and just doing amazing work. And I feel so honored and blessed to have been in that room because I'm on a healing journey like a lot of other people. And sitting in that room helped me along my path, along my journey. I sat with a lot of it and I realized, you know, some of what I've been doing that is a result of PTSS and how it manifests in my life. And awareness is definitely um awareness is definitely part <laughs> of the solution. So, yeah, I'm going to get into it. They they share some dynamic not only examining it and defining what it is, but some resolutions and that's what we need. Resolutions. So, I hope as you hear this and you listen to this whether you are an African in America or an African somewhere in the around the globe or if you're not an African but you interact with, live with, work with, um, interact with, do anything that has to do with African people around the world. I hope this helps you be a better person towards. The truth is, I don't care who this is listening to it, whether you like Black people don't like black people. We all know the truth, though. We all know the truth that black people have been oppressed in so many ways. And it's time to start healing that. Period. Just to be clear, not every single black person has PTSS. Not every single black person does. There is, however, a huge chance that it does affect some aspect of black people's lives, no matter their socioeconomic or education level, uh, no matter their history, as far as their personal family history, how much they know about their past, whether they know what part of Africa they may have come from, whether whether they even acknowledge the fact that they they are of African descent at all, um, whether they have any family ties to enslavement or being enslaved, um, being part of chattel slavery. At the end of the day, the policies and procedures, the nightly news shows that The founding of this country, which was founded on enslavement and built up and made rich because of enslavement, does affect black people 
whether people are consciously aware of it or acknowledge it or not. It does. But there's levels to everything. So on her website, Dr. Joy DeGruy does point out the different manifestations of those who are affected by PTSS. As a result of 12 years of quantitative and qualitative research, Dr. DeGruy has developed her theory of post-traumatic slave syndrome, publishing her findings in the book, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, America's Legacy of Enduring Injury and Healing. The book addresses the residual impacts of generations of slavery and opens up the discussion of how the black community can use the strengths we have developed in the past to heal in the present. And that's so important for those who are on a healing journey, for those who may eventually embark on a healing journey, and for those who are young and learning about things that are negative just attached to them being born black. And that's not, nah, we we want to disrupt that. So when I say we black people who want healthier todays and futures, we can change the past, but we can work on today and we can help the future be um, healthier, I say. So what is PTSS? PTSS is a theory that explains the etiology of many of the adaptive survival behaviors in African-American communities throughout the United States and the diaspora. And it resulted in MAP, M-A-P, M, multi-generational trauma together with continued oppression, A, absence of opportunity to heal, or access the benefits available in the society, leading to P, post-traumatic slave syndrome. Key patterns of behavior reflective of PTSS. Vacant esteem. Insufficient development of what Dr. DeGruy refers to as primary esteem, along with feelings of hopelessness, depression, and a general self-destructive outlook. Marked propensity for anger and violence. Extreme feelings of suspicion and perceived negative motivations of others. Violence against self, property, and others, including the members of one's own group, like friends, relatives, or acquaintances. Racist socialization. Internalized racism. Learned helplessness. Literacy deprivation distorted self-concept, antipathy, or aversion for the following, the members of one's own identified cultural ethnic group, the mores and customs associated one's own identified cultural ethnic heritage, the physical characteristics of one's own identified cultural and ethnic group, And so those three things, I remember when I was 15 and I was separated from my family and I had gone to school in New York City my whole life up until 15. And when I was separated from my family, I was able to go 
on paper, you would be like, wow, so she got to go to an amazing school. Because I went from a school in New York City, the city part, to a school in upstate New York. In, um, what was the name of that small town? It was in Westchester. I forgot the name of it now. It's near White Plains. Mount Kisco? Mount Kisco. Yep. I remember it now. So, my schools in New York, I loved my elementary school. Loved it. I had black teachers. I had white teachers. Oh, my na- Everybody in my neighborhood was black. But the white teachers at the school was nice, too. It was cool. K through fifth grade? Cool. Uh, went to a middle school in an all-white neighborhood. It was terrible. It was terrible. And so that that's what ended up leading me to go to this school, me getting separated from my family and going to this school up in Mount Kisco. When I tell you I got on that school bus, I was so un- no, I was so unprepared because all of my schools in New York were okay, but they were small. They were, I, I'm not going to say small. They were standard New York City schools. New York is New York. Um, but in comparison to the school I went to in Mount Kisco, my schools were small, um, not funded. Like we, I remember having to share books. I remember the books were like people wrote in them already. When I got to that school in Mount Kisco, and this was high school, books were brand new. Um, the building was state of the art. The ground, they had a freaking, they had a pool, a football field. That's the first time I saw lacrosse. I didn't know what they were doing with the little ball. I didn't know what they were doing. They had a um, a library, a three-floor library, state-of-the-art. I thought, it was, I thought they were taking me to college. Like, whose school is this? This is my school? I get to go to this school? The name of the school is Fox Lane High School. I'm sure it's still there. I probably can look it up. It was a beautiful school. It is a beautiful school. If it's still, um, which I'm sure is still going on. But it was an amazing high school. Yep, there goes the Fox. (laughs) Bedford, New York. So it's nearby Mount Kisco. And the school is just beautiful. The campus. I'm looking at it right now. Huge, humongous. And I was just so shocked. Like, cultural shock. I'm still in the same country. I was still in the same state. I was about less than an hour away from the city. And then I saw what was going on. I saw the black and white difference. The school was majority white. The neighborhood I lived in, two blocks in that neighborhood were black. The rest of the neighborhood was white. So, on paper, I was supposed to do well, right? I'm going to the school that had all the resources. <sighs> I was not prepared for that in any way. Um, it was really, that was traumatic. You wouldn't think that would be traumatic, but in my 15-year-old head, I was like, black people ain't doing life right. If white people got all of this. At that time, History wasn't explained to me about how things, you know, went down and how uh, property tax 
pays for the school and, and, and how access and limited access affects economic mobility and how economic mobility has been intentionally kept from black people in America. So people outside of America be like, oh, black people got this because you'll see Michael Jordan and you'll see all these stars. I don't know, Jamie Foxx, Michael Jordan, who else? I can't think of Jay-Z, Beyonce, um, different rappers that wear, wear all the different jewelry. All the... No, but the majority, mm, I'm getting, I'm going to other. At 15 years old, I had no idea outside of what I could see with my two eyes why black people didn't have this kind of school to send their children to. It was only white people. So my self-identity was affected by that. And I really disliked being black when I was 15. I disliked it. I hated it. I really did. And... I tried to fit in at the school, but because of my height, I didn't have a name. I didn't have the family connections. I went to a couple of parties when I first got there because they didn't know what kind of black person I was or or who's your family? What can you do for us here at this school? So because of my height and I guess my build, they thought I would, I would be able to play basketball. So I had white girls that was trying to be my friend. I was like, okay, they accepted me. Boy, I got out there in that court. I, I, I don't play basketball. I didn't even know what they was talking about. Go, Just run. They were being so aggressive. Oh, they was being aggressive. Just run. I wasn't athletic at all. Regardless of what I looked like, I wasn't athletic at all. Run, I was so tired. I didn't even know the rules. I never played basketball a day in my life. I didn't even watch it. So when I couldn't perform for the girls who were quote-unquote going to be my friends, when I tell you the level to which they completely dismissed me, so that was another form of grief. I was away from my family. I didn't like being black. But what else you going to be but black if you black? Um... And I was no longer accepted because I couldn't play. I couldn't perform for them. I couldn't bring anything to them. They dismissed me so completely. And I wasn't rich. I didn't have no. I didn't have no money. I didn't have no big house in Pound Ridge. Pound Ridge is a is a play, uh, um, neighborhood that's near there. That's the richy rich 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 neighborhood. And I remember being friends with. Um, I got kicked out of that school because <laughs> I started cutting classes. Then I, I was going to um, the library and reading books. What kind of kid cuts school to sit in the library and read all day? That's what I did, though. So I got kicked out of that school and was put in a special special education special education school. I had to ride the little bus. And on that little bus, I did meet a girl a white girl who um, was friendly to me for a little bit while she could because her parents wasn't with it. Um, interesting that I'm reliving all of this. But I remember going to a party at her house in Pound Ridge. Nope, it wasn't her parents. It was myself. I will give myself that credit because when I went to the party I'm about to tell y'all about, I'm about to share with you, I knew that that's not what I wanted for my life. Mind you, 
financially speaking, I had nothing. But I was not willing to compromise my whole entire self to be accepted by a group of people I knew was not nah, hell no. So I went to this party in Pound Ridge, 15 years old, about to be 16 or whatever. The house was the craziest house I've ever been to in a beautiful way. House was beautiful. There were no parents anywhere. I guess her parents were out of town. I don't know. But it was just teenagers everywhere. It was, I couldn't believe it. Now, I'm from New York City. I'm a black inner city girl from New York City, and that's the first place I saw drugs. First place. Like, on a personal level? Nah. They had the little baggies with the little pills in it. They were drinking drugs and sexual activity. And I was definitely still a virgin at the time. What? What are y'all over in the corner, all out in public? No, it was time to go home. Mm-mm. And she was like, What's... no, I did not want to be her friend. I did not want to be associated with none of that because that was crazy. Like life was already crazy enough. And what I was not going to do was add drugs and wild sex and alcohol to my life. At least, <laughs> at least at the time I had enough sense not to do that. So yeah, I wasn't, I stopped being her friend. Um, and I remember her showing me her snowmobiles that she had gotten for Christmas. I was like, you got snowmobiles with an S for Christmas? I was like, why did you need more than one? She was like, in case a friend wanted to ride it. Or you, I was oh, okay. I mean, that's nice. Material things are nice, but, you know, the internal. So anyway, PTSS affects our economic mobility. And that's true. Uh, education, economic mobility, just all kinds of things. The good, the good news is, all of that is true. The good news is it's healable. And that's what the panel discussion got into. And that's why I'm so happy to be, to have taken the time to have sat with it for this length of time and to present it, present a recap and review for others on this here podcast today. Word. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So the panel discussion started out with introductions by the YWCA's community engagement manager, Jamila Green. Amazing personality. She was so warm and inviting. I remember walking into the, um, walking up to the table before you go into the room for the presentation. And she was like, hey. And I was like, hi. I thought I knew her. I was trying to place her. You know how you meet somebody so just really authentically nice to you. I thought I met her before, but I'd never met her before. So she introduced the panel um, after describing her position. And her position was, 
Her position is that she creates and curates different programs around racial justice and advocacy for community, as well as her co-workers and other staff at the YWCA. She definitely is in a position that is fit for her, for sure. So she introduced the four people who are on the panel, Raquel Ward, Isis Bay, Sonia Richardson, and the moderator, Ashley Peterson. Um, the three panelists, Raquel Ward, Isis Bay, Sonia Richardson, are all in the social work field. Two of them, Isis Bay and Sonia Richardson, have their own private practice, mental health practice. They're also adjunct professors, and they do amazing work throughout the community of not only North Carolina, not only Charlotte, but also North Carolina and nationally and internationally as well. So we had an amazing panel of brilliant black women before us. So everybody was ready. Um, So Jamila introduced them and passed the mic for the discussion to begin. And Ashley, as the moderator, spoke to disrupting things. And she was about to get into the first question when she got disrupted because Isis Bay wanted to make sure that the ancestors we were speaking about, ancestor ancestors came up and she wanted to make sure that we were honoring the ancestors in the right way. Because if we're going to speak about the ancestors, it's important to acknowledge them properly. So the room under the direction of Isis Bay took a moment and gave honor to those who came before us from our heads, from our hearts, and in the tradition of the African dancers and drummers touching the floor, which gives honor to those who came before us. And not everybody had to or chose to, but the majority of the room chose to do so. And we had a moment of silence. Um, After that, Isis Bay reached out to the elders 60 years old or above in the room and asked for the permission of the elders to move forward with the program. And the elders gave permission. And then the program began. So the first um, question was to define PTSS. And Sonia Richardson, she, um, I gave a bit of her background, a bit of her background as an owner of a mental health practice, um, private practice, and she's had it for about 16 years now. She is an associate professor at, an assistant professor at UNCC, and she's, uh, this is her own definition of herself, an unapologetic Black researcher. She said, everything I do is for the Black community. Gotta love that, right? Um, she gave credit to Dr. Joy DeGruy because that's the work that they were speaking from. She gave credit because we're speaking from, they were speaking from the perspective of a Black female scholar. So that got claps around the room. And she shared what the three different elements of PTSS are. Generational trauma, continued oppression, and abscess, absence of access and opportunity. And how does the syndrome manifest? A feeling of ever-present danger, like dangerous pending and continuous and being cautious and suspicious. So for those who are listening, just think about the different experiences that you may have throughout any given day 
if you're shopping and you notice somebody watching you, not watching other people, watching you in a department store. Or say you're having a conversation with somebody and somebody gives your child a compliment and you be like, well, her bad self. Matter of fact, I had this happen with a friend of mine recently where he was telling me, he sent me a video of him and his sons playing basketball. And I haven't seen his sons since they were like, I don't know, a couple of years now. And they were much shorter, you know, kids, they sprout up. And so, and my friend is tall. He's about six, one, six, two. And his, one of the twins, they're twins. One is short, one is tall. The tall one was taller than him. And I was like, wow, the boys are so big. And his first thing was, and aggravating as hell. It's almost like an automatic thing. You know how in the black community sometimes we'll describe, somebody will say, oh, she's so cute. Or he's so handsome or he's so smart and we'll say with his bad self why just we we can say thank you because yes our kids are cute and our kids are handsome and our kids are smart and our kids are talented and our kids are brilliant but how things happened with us historically back in the times of slavery we had to downplay how skilled or talented our children were, or they could get taken away from us, sold away from us. So no, they're not going to be sold now, but that mentality of how we parent our children, downplay their excellence, has been passed down. Also, an ever-present feeling of anger, like just below the surface, just below the surface, Because how many times can you watch somebody be taken out on the nightly news? Like a George Floyd situation or an Ahmaud Arbery situation or a Breonna Taylor situation and not be affected. Or in the workplace, when you know that person is less qualified than you. But they try to justify it by the annual review. They don't give you your right review. You can't get that right money or you can't get that next position. When you know certain things are blatantly racist and racist, not somebody calling you an N-word or just not liking you for their whatever reason, but blocking you from upward mobility. And you know it's racist, but you can't actually prove it or stop it. That, that'll leave a kind of anger in your system. So, and having she, uh, Dr. Sonia Richardson, she's a PhD, she spoke about having to fight for certain access to AP classes for her children. She's a mother of two. And um, speaking to that, is it, it gets to be a lot. So the constant need to be protective of our family. <laughs> Continuing on with defining PTSS, Isis Bay got into the way black people were oppressed. And the way to oppress was, and how it happened through enslavement was, to replace a people's culture, their tradition, their spirituality, their language, 
with that of a dominant culture enforced through violence and psychological warfare and torture and all of the things. But you don't know your history because you learned his. That's what PTS looks like. PTSS looks like. Isis Bay said, we walk in anger and conflict every day because we're walking with something running through our blood. And we're fighting something that is foreign to us, that has been conditioned into our bodies for over 400 years. Toxic stress is passed down through hormones in our DNA. The healing models need to be culturally responsive to that because there are differences. We're born with the chemical in our body that makes us be that protective. It's been for over 400 years. Yes, we're going to be a different kind of protective over our family, friends, loved ones, children. Raquel, Raquel Ward, I love what she said when she said, it manifests in self-doubt. That's big. And it's so true. We don't know our greatness. So she suggested going inside for an interview. Not an interview, an interview. And take a look at that internalized oppression. You got to do the inner work in order to heal. Um, Next up was a question about mental health and what our needs are in the black community. Understanding the layers and what, what do we need to be seeking? Because the moderator is a young woman in her early 30s and she's on her healing journey. So she took it personal, as we all did, all the people who were black in the room. And it was, it was not just black people in the room. But um, it is a personal journey. And Raquel Ward, again, she said, what do we need to be seeking? We need to be, and she spoke from the perspective of a healer, a social worker, and someone who's on her healing journey as well. So she said the awareness of trauma is important. Look at your family of origin. Are you aware of any generational trauma? Again, she spoke about that interview. She also spoke about her grandmother who came from the South. Um, She grew up in Detroit. Her grandmother came from the South but never talked about the South. Have you had that experience in your family? I definitely did. I grew up in New York City. Didn't know my family was from the South until I was about 19. And I was doing a, a, a research project for school. And I asked my grandmother about her parents. And she told me that her father was a sharecropper. And that he got lynched because he was leaving the fields. And Granny, my great-grandmother, came up by herself and the kids. And so I didn't learn that until I got basically to be an adult. But my grandmother never talked about the South and never wanted to go back. And Raquel Ward shared that about her 95-year-old grandmother who not only didn't talk about the South, but when she talked about Black people, she said, don't buy stuff from Black people. That's PTSS. Why would you say don't buy stuff from Black people? Like, what's, you know, what, what's that? And examining the things that have happened in your specific family. 
Isis Bay continued with teaching that trauma is not a thing. It's the body's response to those events that have happened in our lives and in the lives of our family members before us. Because what we cannot do is change any of that. We can't change slavery. We can't change Jim Crow. We can't change the black codes. We can't change any event that already happened. So trying to heal that is not going we're not going to do anything. But our response to hearing about it or seeing something that's similar, that's the healing that we can do. And um she went on to teach about how the brain stores unconscious stuff. And if we just take new information and slap it on top of the old information, all that's doing is putting perfume on a pig. In order to heal, we have to unlearn, disrupt, decolonize, and to quote Isis Bay directly, clean that shit out. We heal holistically as African people because it's all connected. We're holistic people. We just don't always remember. But what we need to do is never forget to remember. We come from something that's other than slavery, for real. So then we go over to Sonia Richardson, and she she pointed out the aspect of considering mental health from an ancestral perspective. And she taught me something that I did not know. I heard of drapetomania, which was the psychological... Mm, psychologists exist, white psychologists existed during the slavery, slave era. And when a black person tried to escape from a plantation, they were diagnosed with having a mental disorder. When black people wanted to escape being raped, beaten, taken from their family, worked, forced to work from sunup to sundown, just all kind of atrocities. When they ran away from that, they were diagnosed with a mental disorder called drapetomania. Now, I had heard of that. What I didn't hear of, there was another disorder that was created just for black people where if a black woman cried or got emotional about her baby being snatched from her, I can't remember the actual terminology, but that was considered a mental disorder. So black people have been conditioned for hundreds of years, passed down through generations, not to have emotions about their children, not to be too connected to their children, not to run away from rape and oppression and violence and torture. Because if you do something was wrong with you, and if you got, if you got away, you got away. Shout out to the people who got away and shout out to the people who survived as well. For real. Um, but if you didn't get away, you were subject to all kinds of torture. They don't they didn't kill us because they can't make money off a dead slave. So we just alive enough for them to make money off of us until we pass away. So shit is deep. Seriously deep. So um 
she talked about the, the, the strong woman syndrome because if a woman, y'all know we, mothers, y'all know we love our babies. Ain't no perfect mothers. But if you are kept from showing your emotions about your man, your babies, your family members, your mother, your father, your cousins, your brothers, your sisters, your life. You can't show that emotion or you're going to get diagnosed and taken away from your family. So you have to mask your emotions. So that's where the strong woman, strong black woman syndrome comes from. Or strong black women facade where we have to hold in everything and try to we just do it all. I do it. I got it. I do it. And that's barriers that many don't want to acknowledge. But raise your hand if you grew up with a black woman that she could do it all. But you know it was affecting her. I had a grandmother like that. So when it comes to mental health, it's important to seek and find someone that you that can handle all of you. She talked about having clients where they can sit with her and they can say, these white people today get on my nerves. I don't like them. And they can have that conversation in the therapy session in a safe space for real, for real, and learn tools to be able to deal with what they're dealing with in the world. It's important to find a therapist where you can show up unapologetically and that way you can just express your feelings get them out and it has to be a culturally informed safe space that can serve you correctly throughout the panel discussion there were several running themes disrupting oppression being unapologetically yourself. Like when Isis Bay described herself as an unapologetic black queen, she said, I love me now. I value me now. She said she's a villager, a collectivist, not an individualist, a disruptor of oppression. She's multilingual. <laughs> no such thing as proper language because any language spoken within community is a proper language. She's a culturally responsive social justice worker. And that's who we need. That's who we have. We have a lot of them. And that's why I'm doing this episode as well to highlight, shine a light on the solutions that are being and, and the work that's being done out there. Like, there's people out here working for our best interests. And we need to be part of those people, part of the team that's working for our best interests, each one of us. In continuing what PTSS is, defining it, it's denying what black people feel. Black people, when they go to a therapy session that's not culturally responsive, they get told by others that what they feel is not what they feel. Like if a person, if a black person says for themselves, I think I may have PTSD. No, you don't have that. That's not trauma. That's, that's um, for veterans. But if a black person tells you they feel unsafe, that's what they feel. Incident after incident of, for centuries of anti-black violence directly or indirectly 
we know what we feel. So there are times when we feel unsafe. And when we feel unsafe, our bodies may go into protection mode. We may shut down and I want to talk in an, in an environment that we feel is not safe, whether it's the workplace, whether it's young people at school or any other situation. But then you have this person telling you, you don't, that's not oppression. That's not anger. You're oppositional. You're defiant. You're all these kind of things. When black people tell you what they feel, they know what they feel. So instead of acknowledging the problem, they get pathologized, especially, especially our black children. They get pathologized. And what's pathologized? I had to look that that word up. To pathologize something is to regard it or treat someone or something as psychologically abnormal or unhealthy. But instead of pathologizing, it's time to be apologized to. Um, Sonia, Sonia pointed out, uh, Dr. Richardson pointed out, how many children get referred to her agency, her mental health practice, how many children specifically get referred to her mental health practice being diagnosed or referred for ADHD. And so she and a few others did a research study for Mecklenburg County, specifically Charlotte, North Carolina, Mecklenburg County, to to examine how ADHD and gifted children are seen in Mecklenburg County. And it's a published study that the title of it is The Gifted Gap, STEM Education and Economic Mobility. And in studying the data, Mecklenburg County defines one in four white children as gifted. Three out of 100 black children as gifted. What? I know too many, too many brilliant black children. I looked it up what the definition of gifted was, and it's so close. And I mean super close to what the definition for gifted is. The difference, a big difference is when a child is in a classroom. So, well, I'll tell you what gifted is defined as. Gifted means they learn fast. They're inquisitive. They're curious. They understand complex concepts quickly. And according to the Association of Gifted Children, when environmental stimuli decrease, hyperactivity increases as a means of self-stimulation to compensate, compensate for the lack of cognitive stimulation. In other words, they're bored. So in my own comparison, in a classroom in New York City where we had a lack of resources, if the teacher in front of the classroom wasn't engaging us in the learning process, because when I went to school in, in um, elementary school in New York City, me and all my friends had reading scores of 12th grade and higher, and we were like in third and fourth grade. Brilliant. Even with the books that wasn't was trash, even with the lack of 
field. We didn't have no field to run on. We didn't have no, you know, even with the lack of things, but because we had a competent teacher in front of the classroom, we were intellectually interested in what was going on in the classroom. We were engaged, involved, and we were learning. But if you have a classroom that is not engaging the children, that is not challenging them, that looks at them like, oh, this is a black child. They ain't going to, they just put them over here. ABC, two plus two, here you go. Bored. Yeah, they acting up. But if you're in a classroom of children that you believe in, that you believe one out of four of them is is gifted just by birth, just by virtue of their birth, you're going to give them certain stimulations. And if you have the resources on top of that, you got the money to have all the boards and the nice fresh books and the field trips and the wonderful food, the healthy lunches, all kinds of stuff. There's going to be a difference. So that data was shocking, but it was, it's, it's the truth. If the experts are looking at white children saying one in four, one in four are gifted. So they for, therefore they get the resources that lead them up to AP classes and AP classes lead up to college, um, college education. College education leads up to not only the jobs based on their education, but the connections that you make in college, the network that you make in college, the things you get exposed to, the internships, the opportunities, the access, the exposure, all of that. So then you got three out of 100 black children. Then also a lady in the audience, one of her children did get into the gifted program and a teacher in the gifted program told her that her child was ADHD. The teacher wanted to diagnose her child as ADHD so the child would be taken out of the out of the gifted program. So the, the, the fight is constant and to be aware of it is important so that you can be uh, like when you see it, you're not shocked by it and you're prepared to, you know, gather your tribe, gather your resources and do what you got to do to not be um, pushed into the margins of your own story. Is is the educational system, systemic racism is reinforced dehumanization that did not stop with the slave era. It is ongoing oppression. So what Sonia Richardson tells her um, parents to do, go back to the school and instead of having your child referred to be um, diagnosed for ADHD and put on medication, ask that your child be tested for giftedness. And she said the results have been good, but the parents have to know what to advocate for. So that's serious. Um, The next up was the question of cognitive dissonance, the state of having inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, or attitudes, especially as relating to behavioral decisions and attitude change. So the moderator, Ashley, shared that growing up, Her family was intact. They were living the American dream. They lived in an all-white neighborhood. She went to all-white schools. She had a great life. Then she went to college, and she went to A&T, which is an, an HBCU. And it was so different. 
like the differences were stark. And so she didn't, you know, attribute it to anything other than just, you know, growing pains and trying to figure out life or whatever. And then she got into corporate America where she knew she was a diversity implant. That's her terminology for it. And um, she was, you know, starting to question certain things after being in a safe environment in a quote unquote safe space, but not getting the protection that she thought she would in that quote unquote safe space. And she began to embark on her own healing journey and started realizing that she made a lot of decisions without really knowing herself. So her question, her next question to the panel was, what impact does the erasure of slavery's true impact on us as Black people have on on us? Because again, like she said, you make all these decisions without really knowing who you are. So ISIS gets into how that manifests in Black people after centuries of institutionalized anti-blackness embedded into our families and into into our um, psyche and the the heavy resistance to new information that differs from the slave era and the antebellum Jim Crow ideas about being black new information like we really, there really were kings and queens on the continent. And there really was like a different access to the most high creator. There wasn't, there was just, we had our own way of life. We ate different. We had our languages. We had our traditions. We had our, what do you call it? The rites of passage from childhood to adulthood we had communities we were a community we are a communal people so we had all of these things that were erased from us even though my school was great from elementary school our history started with slavery according to western ideology and that's just not the truth so that if somebody tells you that kings and queens i remember oh gosh i remember Somebody I was dating a few years ago, and I called him a king once, and me and him, ooh, we were very physically attracted to each other, so that's what was the first the first connection. But on a deeper level, we, we just think so differently. We couldn't be together. Because um, when I called him a king, he was like, don't, don't start none of that. I don't, I don't do all of that. And... um. I saw him the other day and he saw my phone and my, my screensaver is red, black, and green. And he was like, look at you. Everything, Wakanda forever. Like, <laughs> but he really doesn't like me to talk about um, the things that I learn when I read, say, a John Henry Clark or a Sheikh Anta Diop or um, anybody that's not America is the greatest or anybody that talks against like the Django movie, how Django, how Jamie Foxx's character fought, blew up everything, came and got his woman at the end. What? That is my movie. And he just feel like, here you go. Because anything that goes against 
the white picket fence and the American dream of the melting pot and everybody just gets along. Yes, slavery happened, but that was the past and forget about it. Don't try to put new information. And Isis Bay talked about how it can become an internal struggle to the point where the person may want to protect the the abuser slash slash oppressor and it gets it gets because it's like messing with your identity i am american red white and blue fourth of july juneteenth get the fuck out of here with juneteenth fourth of july merry christmas happy easter saint patrick's day kwanzaa if you don't get a black history like it's a whole me and him just can't. Me and a lot of people just can't. Because <laughs> I'm not celebrating none of that no more. Yes, I did. Because that's where I grew up celebrating that stuff. But it's not attached to me. I don't connect to it. Not as an adult. And so I've had to separate from the identity I grew up with. And that's what she spoke to. It's, it's a sort of grief. And, and it gets very, very serious. Because this is what our grandmothers and our grandfathers told us that we needed to have to be. You know what I mean? This is your identity. And it takes a lot of self-work to change the thought that we are not less than and we are not inferior. But it's worth it. It's definitely worth it to... um, take off and dig out the oppressive culture that took our resources when they came to the continent and left us their religion. People can choose. People can choose to still deal with and live by whatever religion they choose. But where the problem comes is when you tell me there's only one way to get to to the Most High Creator. And you don't want to deal with me or work with me because um, I don't believe the same way you believe. And it just, it ruins a lot of relationships. But those who are in line with each other, it'll, it'll still work out. It'll still work out. What's important for us is understanding in our bones, cognitive dissonance, other quote unquote big words, maybe a little bit challenging to understand because that's not our day-to-day. Like intellectuals and academics, yes, we can talk about that all day. They can talk about that all day. But the average person, listen, we need to understand, look, how does this oppression, how does this PTSS, what has it really done to us? And it's done a thing to us. And how we believe and how we think, and it's very major. So... In having, in gaining an awareness of how oppression, yes, it does really affect us, then we can move forward to finding a way to actually heal it and start getting in on that self-work. And that's what the important work is, that self-work. Saying I can't instead of I don't know how is a big thing. So if we're out in the world saying I can't do this, I can't do that, and we're attributing it to us being black, then we won't be able to do it. What we can do is change our language and say, I don't know how yet. 
or I don't know what avail- what resources are available. That's the way to look at things. But and this is my favorite quote from the whole entire discussion. When Isis Bay said, we believe we can't control our emotions. We believe we can't control our thoughts. That's cognitive dissonance because we really can. It's a brain thing. It's unlearning and retraining the brain. And we can take our power back. We can. Word. Moving forward, the panel got into the topic of what role can individuals, families, the community, and institutions play as it pertains to conversations like the one being held on that evening. Isis Bay held up a sign, self-work. Raquel Ward built on that. Focus on the children, not waiting for oppressive systems to change. Do your self-work and focus on the children. Do an interview. Know thyself first, and then understand how it has affected parenting and your interpersonal relationships, which have been affected. Dr. Sonia Richardson spoke about the model that she's working on in, con- in collaboration and conjunction with A&T, and it's a funded research project where they met with Black youth parents providers and community members to try to see what's working and what's not working as they build this model. And one young man, she said he'd been sitting in the back the whole time, had his hoodie on, and um, he raised his hand. He asked, why? Why do y'all even care? Nobody cares about us. And she said the whole room got quiet. And it affected her. And it also confirmed her dedication to unapologetically prioritize the needs of black youth in her work because their needs have not been prioritized. How do we limit the effects of PTSS? We prioritize black populations. Black populations are not an afterthought. We advocate, we invite and partner with black populations. We don't run from the greatness of black people or try to minimize it. And she ended with eliminate the saviorism complex. Our feelings are okay. Our feelings can be processed. A lot of times we don't want black people to feel anything and that goes all the way back to slavery, not being able to express our emotions. And this lesson is personal as a mother, as a friend. I don't have to fix other people. I can't. I can't fix them. But when I interrupt them and try to tell them, oh, you don't feel this or you don't feel that, no, that's not my job. What I need to do, like Raquel Ward said, is my inner work. Understand my feelings, my emotions. Learn how to regulate my feelings, my emotions. I can be supportive of people I love. I can offer space. I can listen. But what I need to do is disrupt my own-ish first. So then they got into... um, Ashley spoke about how when she got to A&T and um, 
Well, actually, Isis brought up the fact that when when Ashley spoke about going to A&T and how the room was like, you know, responded to that. She was like, why Why do y'all think we do that when we see A&T and we just gave the shout out like that? Because as a result of slavery, we were restricted from loving ourselves. Like literally, it was literally legally prohibited. Who you know was legally prohibited from loving themselves for centuries? There's other people who are oppressed, yes. Other people who had genocide practice against them, yes. But in addition to that, our language, our hair, we couldn't even smile. We couldn't even try to talk to the most high creator. Some people call it God. Mm. So when we say we love our music, we love our hair, we love being black, we love our style, we love our culture, other people are like, oh, okay. Like not understanding that enthusiasm when we feel that way about ourselves. But we were restricted from it. So that's a a form of freedom that we, we like to celebrate. So we are a collective people. We'll celebrate that because it's safe. It's safe to say that, that that small thing. But collectively, overall, we were conditioned to shrink, to hide, to stay safe, to downplay. We know how to be collective in that manner. But we got to learn how to be collective and not speaking speaking against ourselves. To quote Isis Bay, I have a voice whether you listen to it or not. Don't speak for me. And I loved how she shared when we're speaking to, say, a child or someone we love, don't speak for them. And she gave us some suggestions like, could you share how you feel? If you're okay with that, please share how you feel. And as to the professionals that were in the room, there were a lot of professionals in the room Don't speak for that person in front of you, especially a black person. Give them the space and the support. That's all you can do. And if they ever feel comfortable enough with you to share, then they will. (laughs) She said, um, in, in using her own self as an example, I said what I said. What you do with it is your business. And I'm mindful of the space that I'm in. Basically, find your tribe so you don't have to be careful about how you move. Be respectful, but you could just be yourself when you find your tribe. Stop trying to convince everybody because everybody ain't in your tribe. And that part okay. Difference is okay. There's no need for racism when we realize that difference is okay. She spoke about how everybody family, some family put raisins in a potato salad. I choose whether or not to eat that potato salad. I might, I'm probably not going to eat your potato salad because I don't do raisins in there. But as long as you ain't trying to poison me, we good. Stop trying to convince everybody. You can't make nobody like you. Difference is okay. Calling somebody a nigga is personal belief. It doesn't change the way I go about my life. She used the example of if you call me a nigga... I could still grow my own food. That's not racism. You're not stopping nothing. 
I still get to be have cultural pride. If if that's how you feel about me, that's your feeling. As long as you ain't over here with that, you're fine. So you are who you've been waiting for. Take your power back. That's a, that's a key point of the session, what healing entails. Take your power back. Self-work changes things. Your difference doesn't intimidate or threaten my existence. So you have different opinions about me. That doesn't change my existence. That doesn't intimidate me. Black folk has always have always been a collective folk. We show up for everybody. Now y'all know that's true. We show up for everybody. And then we start looking around when it's time for people to show up for us. And they're not there. I remember Rihanna even did a whole, I forgot what, what um award show she got on. And she spoke about people not showing up for us. But we show up for everybody. We advocate for everybody. We are a collective people. We still trying to figure out why others don't show up for us. We're trauma bonded with oppressors. Defending that system through explaining it away. That's cognitive dissonance. Because it still serves a specific need. We haven't focused on that self-sufficiency enough. So all of that is ISIS-based teaching. Um, uh, I'm going to include a link to all of their websites because you can have these women come and speak and teach, most of all, teach. Um, And a lot of the times it's, um, well, again, I'll include the link in the description so that you can have access to the work. But these women are doing dynamic things. Um, Lastly, uh, end it with a question from the audience. And someone in the audience, we don't know who it was. It was an an anonymous question. And it was, what role should DEI play in identifying trauma in the workplace? So the panel just got a little quiet and they were like, Repeat the question. So Jamila read it again. What role should DEI play in identifying trauma in the workplace? So for those who don't know, DEI is diversity, equity, and inclusion. So a lot of <laughs> a lot of people, that's a new position that that's come up lately. And it was funny because the moderator spoke to diversity implants. And there's actually a certificate for diversity, equity, and inclusion. So Raquel Ward spoke to it first. She said, just the idea that you have to have it, diversity, equity, and inclusion, that you have to have it, the separateness of that speaks to that there is a problem in your workplace. And so um, Dr. Richardson spoke to it as well. And she spoke to her published article about shamed into action, specifically in the social work position, social work field, how people are shamed into action. And this was in 2020 after, you know, all the protests around the George Floyd murder. 
and all the things that happened, but you were only shamed into those actions. It, some people got the, um, what did they do? They painted some streets. They took down some statues. What else did they do? Um, they had the diversity implants and some, and there was a lot of companies talking, a lot of talking points. Um, during this time, there were also the Karens, um, the one that called on the on the, the bird watch, the people that was calling on the children. Like all, This stuff happens all the time. But it wasn't until the protests that went around the world following the George Floyd incident that people was like, all right, maybe we need to make some changes. And so um, Dr. Richardson spoke to, if you really want to do the work of anti-racism and anti-oppression, work that is actually going to change some things, call a thing a thing. Resist the quote-unquote kind words. Diversity, equity, inclusion, that sounds cute, corporate America, but that's not calling a thing a thing. Call it what it is and really call it out. That's how you deal with the DEI. That's, that's how you change anti-racism for real. That's how you change anti-oppression for real. Call it what it is and really call it out. And Isis Bay ended it with this. She asked the audience a question. What are y'all willing to do? You're, you're asking us questions, but what are you willing to do? You've been here. You sat here. You took in all this information. You're who we've been waiting for. You're who you've been waiting for. Disrupt oppression whatever way you choose, but it starts with you. Word. Word. <laughs>